sorry Jasper, you can put that at the top. Hello and welcome to the Social Review Podcast, being hosted today by Eugenie um, and we've got a kind of very special episode where we're going to be talking all about Labour Conference and I'm joined by a few friends who uh, managed to be there whilst uh, I sadly remained in London over the weekend or maybe not sadly because I think we're probably going to talk quite a lot about uh, everyone's personal experience of the conference, how they felt, the kind of mood and tone of the room in Brighton was. So uh, I'm joined by uh, Miriam. Hi, my name is Miriam Merwich. I'm chair of Young Labour and I am very sorry about my voice. I have conference flu. And Tess. I'm um, Tess at Tess Millsy on Twitter and I managed to avoid conference flu. My, my greatest congratulations to you, Tess. I feel like that's kind of an achievement. And uh, last but certainly not least, uh, William. Hey, I'm, I'm William, William Anair on Twitter. And uh, I managed to avoid conference altogether. I just did The World Transformed. Well, thank you all so much for coming on to talk about it. I think everyone will be very interested in in everyone's experiences over the weekend. I'll do a kind of brief summary for those of you who maybe weren't following it as closely. But obviously, Labour um, Labour had their conference over the long weekend. Uh, we had a couple of, well, more than a couple, uh, a lot of flagship policy announcements regarding Brexit, immigration, private schools, prescriptions, uh, I can't think of anything else at the top of my head. I think that was all the big hits, but certainly it felt like the beginning of conference especially was marked by um, what was uh, leaked, I guess, on Friday night that there was going to be an attempt to scrap the position of deputy leader. But on early Saturday morning, I think it was, or maybe it was late on um, Friday night, uh, Jeremy Corbyn intervened and said there wouldn't be a... um, there wouldn't be a conference motion to scrap the position of deputy leader, but instead there would now be a review in the position. Um, obviously, the position of deputy leader in the past has been held by uh, people like Harriet Harman, John Prescott and Roy Hattersley, so more on the right of the party. And the kind of various talks about what the future of the role could be, such as dividing it in two and maybe having one of those posts permanently be a woman, uh, sound appealing but also we see the you know the attempts to remove Watson potentially as being part of Labour's broader civil war narrative so uh, yes anyone who was online on Friday night uh, was aware of how things got rather messy and out in public and especially about this kind of dispute between John Lansman um, who, who kind of orchestrated I did air quotes uh, the move against Watson. First of all Miriam how did you feel how did you feel conference was for you? What was the tone of the room in Brighton? So there's an extent to which I was in a really lovely young Labour bubble with really lovely young activists and kind of away from a lot of the stuff that happened. But I mean, when I was in the hall, when I was walking around, one of my main frustrations is was that, you know, this conference should have been an election rally. It should have been us demonstrating that we're ready for the general election. We got all these fantastic policies and we're ready to go and look at us. We're so united. But Unfortunately, because of the Friday night, it felt like the whole thing was kind of overshadowed. So the media narrative and the narrative around all of it was disunity and civil war, um, which was a bit frustrating because it felt like, you know, all this amazing effort has gone in from activists and from, you know, in the policy side of things as well. We had so much great stuff to announce. But the headline on the news, because of all the internal power plays, was X to try and get rid of Y or everything along those lines, um, which is really frustrating when we just want to be concentrating on replacing the Tories and and winning the next election. Tess, like, how how do you feel about the kind of relationship between maybe conference and the, the maybe the feeling that there'd been a lost a lost general election in the last few months? I felt very much like it was a Labour Party gearing up for a general election, sealing in some pretty incredible policies um, that are going to be really exciting for activists to sell on the doorstep. What was the vibe like? I found it really bizarre. It's my first conference. The whole, you know, people leafleting outside, weird campaigns fringe events stalls you just bump into or you spot like random people you know I know I got a sense and maybe this is partly um from the you know the Tom Watson news before everything kicked off I was in my hotel room and and with a mate of mine and we were like glued to our phones um I did get a sense that 
the real conference happens not in the secure zone, but in the cafes and the meeting rooms and that around Brighton. <laughs> That's definitely the vibe that I got at the weekend. Well, speaking of the importance of the uh, the fringes, William, I was wondering what how you how this measures against your experience at uh, is it the World Transformed? I always forget because everyone just calls it the acronym. It is the World Transformed, right? Yeah, the World Transformed there TWC. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is uh, which is the momentum kind of I guess parallel event. Um, it's momentum affiliated, as I've been ah. as was made clear to me by momentum. Actually, uh, that mm, it's not theirs. I thought it was. I thought it was their responsibility but it's not hmm that is interesting so the world transformed how did you how did you find that in kind of relation to maybe what the others have been saying about conference or maybe if you spoke to people who had been or were going to both as well i think that would be you know what, what was the measure there so TWT very much felt like the engine from which you saw these fantastic policies like the Green New Deal, like free movement being extended. It felt like the engine that those policies were getting born in, while parallel, you had the Labour Party uh, machinery trying to shut down both of these policies. And so there was a really weird kind of... uh, a really weird kind of vibe where if you went to these fringe events, you had people saying, you know, oh, Labour needs to start looking at paying reparations. Labour needs to look at migration in a way that it's not so economistic like it has been. And you go back to the conference halls and you'd kind of hear the same, you know, left but still Labour, uh, sorry, left but still very Labour um, approach to immigration. And it really did startle me when I found out, you know, when we heard about GMB kind of dragging their heels on a Green New Deal, while on the same day I heard the head of the Fire Brigades Union espousing some fantastic arguments about it and being cheered on, having seen the incredible work the grassroots guys from Green New Deal have done to get it to where it needed to be. And then for so many of my friends who have been part of the free movement campaign to have had their motion, you know, removed to the last day with the lowest attendance and at the composite meeting for Diane Abbott's office to try and gut that motion. The TWT stuff very much felt like where the actual heart of the Labour Party is. And in that same way, you went to these TWT events and it didn't have, you know, these weren't Labour Against the Witch Hunt events. These were very critical of Labourism and all the parts of Corbynism that uh, kind of infects Labourism. Mm, that That is interesting, because I do feel like, and, you know, anyone else, feel free to chime in here, but I think the idea that the world transformed being potentially the more dynamic centre of conference and the conference itself becoming a bit more of a sideshow to it has been at least a persistent piece of analysis that it has faced in the last few years since it started up, Um I think especially I, I have a kind of hazy recollection of the first conference after Corbyn's election when I think a lot of uh, sceptical members in the media thought it would be this kind of like, um, you know, lefty loving or talking about how much they love Marx or whatever. And instead, actually, it was something quite different and quite a bit more transformative and um, optimistic and wide ranging and you know, far more diverse in its in its representations of opinion. Um, and yeah, certainly, as you say, not all labour against the witch hunt and all the rest of it although obviously we would be kind of remiss to pass by the fact that those were factions that were represented at conference this year just maybe not in the places that if you were to only consume a diet of um daily telegraph <laughs> opinion columns uh, where you might expect it to all three of you mentioned the the kind of policies that were being battered around and how how interesting and in, invigorating all of them were. I was wondering if maybe, uh, Tess, what was the one that really jumped out for you the most, that was uh, the most exciting or innovative or um, you know, made you optimistic for the future of the Labour Party? Or indeed, if nothing really jumped out to you also, we could uh, dig into that a bit. I'd say the biggest two things for me were the Green New Deal and the um, win for the Labour for Free Movement campaign, mostly because obviously these are two things which have been, you know, on everyone's lips for quite a while. As William highlighted, the way in which those uh, motions were won uh, and what 
campaigners for those motions were up against, but also just in terms of where it shows where the membership of the party is, a very much an outward-looking internationalist kind of socialism, uh, which is also environmentalist. You know, it really is workers of the world unite. And that's in quite a heavy contradiction, personally, I think, uh, between some of the people who hold uh, elected positions through various levels of the party and also how Labour is portrayed in the media as a result. This was not a socialism in one country, you know, English Socialist Republic type of Labour Party. Um, This was a massive success, I think, for the internationalist socialist left. Yeah, I totally agree about the success of the Labour campaigns of free movement motion. It was really fantastic motion. So much of it is so important and addresses some things which Labour got badly wrong in the past. And I think we just need to stop, you know, giving in to right wing arguments on immigration and actually start making the proper socialist cases about why why it's important. Um, and I also really loved the four day week policy in John McDonald's speech. I think it's really exciting. And he introduced some he spoke about some very exciting, innovative policies in his speech. Um, I mean, if if I'm allowed to talk about policy or a decision that I didn't I didn't love as much and that was um the not campaigning to remain um which i can understand and i have a lot of sympathy with and i don't i don't i don't buy the narrative around stitch ups and things like that i think it you know people did vote as they voted but it's kind of depressing because i, I really do want us to, <laughs> to campaign for more remain and reform and you know i think it's it, i think it's what the people who vote for us want and, and i think it's the way that we'll get the most positive positive result in the next election as well. I also was really happy as well about the Green New Deal motion that went through. I mean, I was kind of depressed by the amount of um, times I heard trade unionists being criticised or slagged off as though, you know, trade unions come to a conference with these positions that they pluck out of there and try to fix to some kind of narrative for the sake of it and not like, you know, they have their own structures and they thought these through and they're representing all these workers outside the room and things and that was a little bit a little bit depressing, but otherwise, so many exciting policies, and I'm really, I'm really glad we're able to talk about them. Yeah, I mean, it's been, I think, in that description of this conference being a very much a rejection of the socialism in one country, you know, closed off, uh, handshake Twitter left. You can really see the influence of Alex Sobel. You can really see where Open Labour's come to force. Uh, no, but it's genuinely like quite evident that Open Labour and let's give ourselves a little pat on the back here uh the social review are genuinely where the center of labor is and i don't mean that in a derogatory way i mean from my own position but it is genuinely where the majority of labor activists and supporters are and i think that best explains itself in you know our favorite policy the four-day week it shows itself very well in the, the green new deal I think for me, the biggest one, biggest one for me was probably, yeah, the the campaign for free movement. My first entrance into politics was in 2015. And when I voted for the Green Party, because I was disgusted by the Labour Party's stance on immigration. And when I saw this brand new kind of shiny new Labour, where it's like, hey, we're not like the old Labour, we're cool. Uh, we don't hate immigrants. And it turned out, you know, after a bit of reading, they still kind of did in the same way. They just pretended they didn't and had Diane Abbott say they didn't. To have them kind of forced away from the engines of state to actually take on the position that even Labour's biggest detractors claim they have, is fantastic. And I'm really happy to see where the party's going. Yeah, on the... Uh, I, forgot, I forgot about the four-day week, God knows how. Um, that I think that was particularly exciting, like, because that... That is a turning point for the Labour Party. That is a Labour Party which is saying we're not going to try to enact socialist policies within the boundaries of you know, the capitalist world in which we live. We're going to challenge the way um, that workplaces operate. The working time directive, you know, the limits on, on working hours, weekly working hours, have kind of become seems to have become like a target for employers and employees like it's become the accepted norm that everyone will work at you know a 40 hour week you know at the minimum and I think it's 
incredible that we're challenging those norms and saying it doesn't have to be this way we can rework you know the way we do economics the way we organize our lives around our work and a total reprioritization of what matters in life and in society so i think that's that's a really exciting one yeah i mean the rejection of you know no alternative politics is absolutely what is fantastic about this conference from saying you know if you outlaw detention centers which we have now said that we will do there is no such thing as you know illegal immigration there's just nothing you can really do uh, which is why it was such a fan, you know, such a break from the leadership when momentum first offered that up as a policy position this kind of new way of thinking like i think labor used you know in the 2017 manifesto we very much said no more tinkering around but i mean what the next manifesto should look like if the leadership actually listened to us will make the 2017 manifesto you know look like i don't know a liberal democrat manifesto or something um, but in terms of potentials i wanted to bring up that like as the you know as someone that really tries to push EFTA and um, that kind of agreement when it comes to Brexit, there's been so much new ground created by the free movement um, motion. This new approach seems to have taken a lot of blindfolds off and I'm loving the optimism, which is good because I hate everything else about the party. Speaking of maybe our slightly more, uh, shall we put it, negative feelings about the party, um, you know, it, it would be remiss of us not to at least draw attention to the fact that there was a, a transphobic fringe event operated by quote-unquote Women's Place UK, uh, which has led to a kind of counterpick, it certainly has led to a backlash um, being perpetuated by uh, transphobic people online. And also there was a, what could only be described as an anti-Semitic banner, which was placed up outside of the conference, which was eventually removed by the police. And yeah, as someone who wasn't at the event, I think it's it's easy to see these things as being just as an intrinsically part of it as the um just as the kind of the policy that we've been talking about, which has made everyone so infused. These events just feel an intrinsic part of the event, and I was just wondering how you all felt your personal experiences with these kind of actually quite negative um, moments where um you know whether they can't help but define conference for you or if your reaction is different, I'd be I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. So this has kind of been a feature for, for me of quite a few conferences and it's absolutely disgraceful. And I feel like it, it's not get it's not almost worse than last year. I think it's all the year before I think it's quite similar. Um and I it's always been I mean, so the, the transphobia is absolutely disgusting and I cannot I cannot wrap my head around it and I'm I'm so glad that so many people challenged it but they shouldn't have, you know, had cups of water poured all over them and things like that for standing up for trans rights and it, it is absolutely disgraceful that they treat like that. And on the on the anti Semitism as well, I mean, I remember being shouted at in public and stuff uh, last time we were in Brighton at conference um, and things like that. So it's kind of it's kind of been a feature of a lot of conferences I've gone to unfortunately and it feels like Conference is still not a safe space for Jewish activists. That like you walk in and you get leaflets about um, really anti-Semitic campaigns. Like there was some horrendous leaflets going around about the Jewish slave movement. And then when you get into the buildings, you'll see sometimes like Chris Williamson or Mark Wadsworth, and they were like wandering around, just you know, almost quite provocatively. And um, even though they weren't party they weren't party members and it's kind of exhausting and um, i mean it was good because we had the jewish aid movement rally which um it was really packed out um and that was i, I listening to our speakers i was i found really inspiring like listening to rosie duffield and and uh, ruth smith and and sadiq khan but you know you also had the packed out rooms with with the events for labor against the witch hunt which was so utterly utterly depressing yeah, I'd say on the um, on the transphobia thing and the anti-Semitism thing, there has to be more done about the people who hang about right outside of where people head in for conference that make trans people and Jewish people feel unsafe, unwelcome. I saw a photo of somebody who has been expelled from the party for anti-Semitism hanging about 
just outside the secure zone and you know thinking about how actually scared I would have felt if I'd have seen that person in person and on the transphobia thing it was I think Charlotte Norton the LGBTQ plus officer for open labour who gave uh, an incredible speech during, I believe it was the mental health motion, basically calling out every <laughs> everything, including the buckets of water being apparently thrown on protesters, peaceful protesters. As a Jewish person at the conference, um, I stayed with a friend of mine for the whole weekend and they stuck to me like glue. Um, and that was because, one, I didn't feel safe on my own, and two, should anything happen, I have, you know, someone there. I can speak up for myself fine, but it just means I'm not on my own. And it's just, it's a sad thing that I had those arrangements, but I was also there as a proud Jewish woman. And as I showed to Miriam, uh, on the Sunday, I wore a top which had a Star of David with the Superman logo um, uh, sort of edited into it uh, that my dad bought me, I think as a joke, <laughs> for Labour Conference. Um, and I wore it proudly around and sure, I got some some funny looks and some glares. Funny enough, no one said anything apart from one guy um who was literally like I think he was driving a tow truck and this was outside of the secure zone and he's sort of like this middle-aged guy comes right up to me jabs his finger at my t-shirt and I'm thinking you know I won't swear on the podcast but I was thinking is this crank gonna scream at me and he literally was like your t-shirt is awesome where can I get one and this the breath of relief the sigh of relief was incredible um <laughs> but you know I'm so glad you said that I was so worried then I was like oh my god like what's gonna oh. it was exhilarating walking around being able to walk around with this t-shirt on being like yep this is who I am this is what I am this is my identity you're not going to change it and you're not going to make me feel ashamed of it um but you know, it's a sad thing that there were people like that and murals like that right outside a conference and more needs to be done next time round. It's not good enough. Yeah, I mean, I just want to start off saying, you know, my absolute sympathies and solidarities to both you two and every Jewish person in the Labour Party, just because I'm, you know, I'm a Gentile and I was absolutely miserable um, I think it must have been, it must have been Saturday, no, I think it was Sunday evening, Sunday afternoon. I was just miserable. As I'd seen the, you know, I'd gone past the leaflet guys, I'd gone past the dude with the banner, and I'd just seen nothing being done about it. And the, it wasn't just so much that they were there, but there was something playing on my mind, very much so, that it wasn't just that they were there, it was that they thought that they could be there. It was that the Labour Party conference and Brighton, and the streets of Brighton, when Labour Party conference is on, that is an acceptable place for them to be doing that. That's what made me feel so despondent and just upset. And that's, you know, I've, I've spoken about this these events uh, on Twitter and in private messages a bit, but like that's it was when I was in my absolute lowest, when... I was kind of wandering around and I look up and the demon headmaster himself, Chris Williamson, is coming down the street toward me. And it's one of those situations where I just had to look at him and, you know, I told him, you're a disgrace. You are a disgrace. And just kept on walking. And I'm really happy that it later came out that at a private event at that Labour Against the Witch Hunt thing, it rattled him. It got him because he said, you know, I've been called a disgrace for being here. I'm so glad that that happened. There needs to be a more coordinated effort against that. And there needs to be a more coordinated effort against, uh, you know, women's place. The thing is, when I say that, when I say those words and they come out of my mouth, I remember that I tried to do that. And I remember what happened. I remember Squawk Box coming down on me like a, you know, a ton of bricks. And how difficult it is to actually oppose these people and oppose their presence. I want the Labour Party at a grassroots level to reject this and the majority of us do you know shout out to um jen 
Scottish Jen on Twitter who was giving the dude that put the banner up, she put him in his place. She went in, he was he was absolutely exposed. And that's when the police had to really get involved and that's when the banner came down. There needs to be a better grassroots organization that specifically exists to educate first and foremost against transphobia, against anti-Semitism, and there needs to be a much more coordinated effort from the leadership and from the party machinery to make clear these views, these actions are not acceptable wherever the Labour Party lies. One of the positive things, I guess, as well, was that even though, as William and Tess said really, really eloquently, like there was so much awfulness and so much intolerance and like, you know, things which are really, really toxic and difficult to deal with, there was also a lot of people standing up, as, as William said, which was really, really positive, and like a lot of really strong allies and a lot of people who were in those groups who were standing up, and it really, it really did show as well the, the value of actually standing up and being counted. Like um, in the Jewish Labour movement, we did a lot of campaigning um, around like allyship badges and things like that, and we had a few events and things like that and, and just making sure that that you know that the, the presence of allies and solidarity was very visible um the one the one thing i'll say is that like while the structures of the party are still so problematic and flawed we probably won't see a situation where like groups are able to engage in in a way to fix things like you know jewish movement won't be able to provide training to every CLP like we want to until the party lets us do it. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, while the structures of the party are slightly flawed and, you know, while we still have, you know, a man who doesn't believe that anti-Semitism exists on the Labour Party re-elected to the National Constitutional Committee that decides on all constitution, all complaints cases, <laughs> and while we still have, you know, someone like Pete Wilsman able to exist on NEC, until these things change, then we'll be able to sort out, like, I think, the lower level things. I'm really glad that JLM had that uh, allyship session. But you just brought to mind one of the very, very bad parts of TWT for me. So when I was sat down on Sunday morning uh, in the tent for a session on radical allyship. And I sat down and I looked to my left and I thought, I recognise that bloke. And I recognise that woman. And I recognise that man. Hmm. I recognise the first bloke was the JVL uh, dude from Oxford East who came to talk to my first CLP, Henley, and got them to affiliate. And the other two were the executive of JVL. So I was at an allyship meeting with the executive of uh, JVL, um, which was, yeah, that was a difficult one. When it got to the interactive section, uh, that was when I just tapped out because there was just no way I was going to, uh, I, was, I wasn't going to be able to handle that situation. <laughs> Also, on the um, the transphobia thing, I think the consequences of um, having groups there that make people feel unsafe, handing out materials or perpetuating things in speeches which deny people's identities, you know, it doesn't just have consequences in person at the event during the weekend and this happens every time something like this happens it unleashes a complete wave of transphobia over certain parts of twitter i think as well transphobia is a problem in the party in terms of it still seems to exist a lot among um parts of the membership and uh in our structures and particularly in terms of, you know, I don't think we have a complaint system which is fit for purpose. Um, so, you know, what happens when you try to report someone for transphobia? I would guess largely the same thing that happens when you try to report some of anti-Semitism. And particularly with our movement, which is now so social media based, it is hugely online. Um, people meeting up all weekend with, you know, Twitter mutuals and, and activists they know through Twitter. The the party has to update its structures at some point when this whole mess gets fixed um, to deal with a membership which exists largely online and operates on social media spaces. Um, and what happens when you have events and campaigns and groups like this 
turning up to our conferences and our party events uh, and the subsequent wave of of hate that it uh, unleashes on social media to activists in and out of the party. Thank you so much for that. That was so interesting because I think however dire the situation is within the party, it, it, it really is heartening to hear that there are the people there who are kind of staying in and... You know, fighting the good fight, for lack of a better word. I mean, not that we would ever want to absolve, you know, the transphobes and the anti-Semites and, you know, all the rest of them, the cranks, of the responsibility for their actions or to minimise the impact they're having on the rest of um, on the rest of the party. To hear voices like the three of yours and the kind of positions you're able to amplify, I think that is somewhat reassuring to, you know, see that there is there is still something left within Labour which is worth worth something <laughs> god that makes me sound like i'm giving a eulogy but um you know whenever we end up talking about the state of the labor party you do always end up in some ways giving a bit of a eulogy the policies are good and the people the people are very bad but my friends you know they're they're they're, they're good you know all of our friends we're good <laughs> so one of the highlights for me personally was meeting so many amazing good young activists like so many people going through and like i think there is no offence to, like, the older generation, because, you know, there are some incredible, talented older activists throughout the Labour movement, but so many of the younger activists just have so much more of a forward-thinking attitude on, and, like, a better understanding on things like fighting anti-Semitism, fighting transphobia, not exclusively, and, and obviously there are there are still issues, but meeting so many talented young activists, seeing so many young activists on the podium, giving fantastic, fantastic speeches, that, that gave me a lot of of hope for the future and made me feel very old and untalented at the same time yeah absolutely some of the best speeches that came out this weekend had come from young labor members from the one you know from the one that was referred to earlier about you know condemning all of that transphobia from women's place and to you know morgan paulette that fantastic speech about um, men's mental health and you know i'm really glad to see that where that got to because that was a very small campaign that he ran um, so to get that motion carried and to deliver that speech is just fantastic. I think there is a lot of value in the youth of the Labour Party. I think going forward, if we want to be elected, if we want to be the next government, because we have all these phenomenal policies and we have so much talent in this movement, I think we need to be very, we need to think carefully and think about what we're doing and how we treat each other at all times and make sure that like the way in which we're acting and things like that is always kind and comradely. And I know I sound like a, a, a non-stop clock and you know, I had a fantastic kind of conference and there were so many amazing, inspiring actors there. But, you know, if we're attacking each other, if we're threatening to walk out, if we are othering each other, then that's what becomes the story, not the millions of people that we need to represent who desperately need a Labour government and we need to try and be together and comradely and hopefully then we can tackle all the awful things that the Tories are doing. Yeah, hard agree. We've got some incredible policies that have come out of this conference, but our party also needs to not just be incredibly excited about that and ready to take it to the doorstep, but also needs to take a long, hard look in the mirror at our anti-Semitism problem, our institutional structures which are um, incredibly easily infiltrated by not just anti-Semitism but other bigotries as well we're seeing increasingly Um, and also um, a culture of bullying and in some cases harassment and in other cases sometimes worse Um, and we need to make sure if we're going to be this incredible member-led movement we really do need to make it a safe welcoming and exciting place for all members to be a part of from my perspective we look at these fantastic achievements you know the green new deal uh, radical change to freedom of movement the national care service the national you know drugs company that's got to be built on the back of a labor movement and that labor movement has to make constant compromises but one compromise it cannot take is the compromise of its own, you know, minority members. We need to remember that for as good as these policies are, they are only as good as the sacrifice that we make to get to them. And that trans women, the Jewish community, you know, immigrants for the last decade, sorry, longer than decade of our existence, they aren't 
the price that we're going to pay. That's never the price that we're going to pay. And we have to come, we have to constantly fight for that to be the case. Well, thank you so much, all three of you. I think you know, your last comments there are, are rousing and heartening for those of us who maybe at times feel you know, almost overcome by abject despair about the state of things. You know, there are there are people like you and you know all the people that you talk about so glowingly are are still around at conference, are still around in the party, and are still um, trying to trying to build a movement which we can all be proud of that speaks for all people, whatever their race, religion, gender identity, sexual orientation, um, things which really should be the cornerstone of any. Uh, any solidarity left movement William where can people find you and, and keep up to date with what you're getting up to uh, so yeah William and on Twitter follow lefter l underscore efter follow actual flirting listen to our EP on iTunes um, wow that's a lot of plugging there's something else I'm supposed <laughs> to mate, mention it's what the plug segment's all about <laughs> you've gotten this far time to do the deep dive uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to thank our founder and you know logger on uh, Joe for letting me sleep on his uh, his premiere in sofa and I'd also like to commend the premiere in sofa it's huge and very comfortable and yeah cheers Joe for that one and cheers everybody else on the podcast for being so lovely oh thank you for that William I'm sure Joe who excitingly is starting his master's degree this week so sadly is not on this week's episode, but would be thrilled to hear that uh, such high praise for his uh, his sofa. So I'm at Tess Millsy on Twitter. The name, the actual name is Greta Stan account, which I think confuses people because I keep being, there's, there are like reply guys in my mentions who keep calling me Greta. So I don't know whether to change that, but yeah, that's, that's where you can find me on Twitter. I don't think I've got anything else to plug except... Um, I mean, I'm speaking in a personal capacity, but I am on the exec, exec of Open Labour, uh, and people should join that. Ugh, we stand, we stand so many legends. Thanks, Tess, and uh, and last but again, certainly not least, uh, thanks, thanks, Miriam. Uh, where where can people um where can people keep up to date with you? So a massive thank you for having me on the podcast because I love you guys and I have so much fun and I love everything you put out and I'm a massive fan. So if there's anything to support work you're doing, all of you, let me know. Uh, but people can find me on all good social media networks. My <laughs> username on Twitter is at MRWTCH, which is a my surname, Merwich, without vowels in it for some reason um but more importantly like get involved in young labor join a trade union get involved in your trade union movement and become a rep because it's really important and if there's something i can do to support the work that you're doing if you're a young labor person let me know because what i'm here for hello 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 it's jasper here at jasper ch on twitter jumping in for the question segment of the podcast uh eugenie uh is still with us hello eugenie hello jasper <laughs> oh that was really um, enthusiastic uh, sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> are you are you is that implying that you shouldn't be enthusiastic when you say hello to me on the podcast sure no be... no we've just we've just been discussing off mic fair listeners but um sadly today i took a <laughs> face first tumble down an escalator at a tube station mm. so um my my mood is very um loose and limber shall we say as i literally uh kind of dragged myself home in the pouring rain covered in bruises and all the rest of it so um yeah prepare for some really wild hot takes is all i can say <laughs> and and you've had your glass of red wine to loosen you up so we're and good. i've exactly i've had my restorative glass of very cheap wine and hopefully uh, as i say feeling loose and limber and ready to take some questions <laughs> You know, when you said when you said dragging yourself through the rain, covered in bruises, the the image which which went to my mind was from the first it where Georgie, oh the kid, the kid in the yellow cat, you know, where he gets his like arm bitten off by Pennywise and then he's like dragging himself along the road screaming. That was my image of what you were doing. Um, literally literally traumatizing, Jasper. Like that's so Yeah. Wow. You've Penny, put that, Penny, you've put that Pennywise right. himself. Oh god. <laughs> um anyway, uh <laughs> um <laughs> moving swiftly on uh to moving our first question. On. Yeah. Two serious um, questions about the future of social democracy in the world. 
Olivia Belton at Olivia Belton on Twitter um, asked us a tough question. Um, you can either have a four day week or abolish private schools, not both. Which do you pick and why? Unfortunately, Joe, uh, the social view um, editor at large, uh, is not here with us tonight. So if you were here, he would be unashamedly backing the four day week. I think I'm confident in saying that as he is a major proponent of the policy as our many other people the social view but we're both in agreement uh, uh that it would be abolished private schools yeah yeah we are so what 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 is your reason why why would you abolish private schools rather than go for the four-day week to me i think abolishing private schools would be able to have a a kind of swift long-term impact on our class system for the better i think that you know the ability to actually really make a material impact on social mobility in this country requires the immediate dissolution of private schools and Mm. it feels to me that um doing that would be like a huge step in the right direction i have to say my feelings about the four-day week do run a bit more kind of hot and cold and not to gosh i'm so sorry joe when you listen to this you're going to be so disappointed in me but um i i do feel um that sometimes some of the things that brought up in debates about the four-day week um, m- might also be impacted by, say, having changings and ch- sorry, changing work time regulations, um, and thinking about thinking about the way we structure our work days in a different way, rather than necessarily going straight down to to four days. Although I'm not, you know, I'm not anti the four-day week by any means, but um, I I personally feel like a- abolishing private schools would have would be such a positive benefit to our society and you know it could be affected reasonably quickly i don't know how you feel jasper i mean i know you agree but (laughs) dig in please Mm. (laughs) yeah no i i do basically i agree with everything you just said um in our interview with uh the journalist maruda Kant a couple of weeks ago she was saying the exact same thing um that maybe it'd be better to have five keep five days a week but you work six hours a day um she was citing her own experience she works six hours a day never really goes over and is perfectly happy i tend to work around six hours a day as well um when i'm doing various projects such as this or a film or whatever i also think another policy which uh labor has been promoting um but in the context of childcare is um that workers should have more flexibility to choose their own hours with childcare be like new mothers can choose when they work based on what is best for them with and and caring for their newborn child um Mm. and i would extend that to a lot of other industries i'm not an expert in all industries so like i don't know how that would work for like uh health or education for example but um from my personal experience of working in hospitality for quite a while we we were working zero hours contracts but the way it was systems were you could book off any time you wanted off on an app um and then you were allocated shifts uh, around that so i was effectively choosing when i wanted to work by choosing when i had time off and i found that really beneficial i was i was you know working to live not living to work as john mcdonald said so yeah i think i think i think there are plenty of other policies which we can be advancing as well as the four-day week but i'm certainly not anti four-day week in the way that i am very vociferously pro abolishing private schools i don't know if you read this um eugenie the piece in the new statesman by patrick mcguire on on whether the commitment to abolishing private school schools will actually go ahead in its full form oh i didn't catch that um fill fill me in i'm interested all right so yeah patrick mcguire wrote it up and it was basically saying how the motion itself i'll just quote from the article uh the motion itself binds the labor leadership um to work towards the integration of independent schools into the state sector so that's a very key thing because integration into the state sector has not always been part of the abolished private schools movement it could have been uh they're just ended and they become museums or something so they're in, integrated into in, in uh, into the state sector the abolition of charitable status uh public subsidies and tax privileges um a seven percent cap on university admissions from private schools and the redistribution of their endowments properties or investments so uh the labor a labor government would expropriate um private school assets and redistribute them uh to the state sector the reason why the article kind of outlines that it may not go through in its full form is because there are contradictions within that motion, but it is bound to do them all simultaneously. So a Labour government could not 
withdraw tax privilege from private schools and cap university admissions at the same time as redistributing their assets wholesale, as as Maguire wrote. Um, so it's going to be a process that it's committing to, but it but the Labour leadership still have some wiggle room with regards to um, the length of time in which that process can be drawn out over and how that process is arranged. So like, it's entirely possible that abolishing private schools will not happen completely, that maybe the charitable status will be removed. I think that is probably quite likely from any future Labour government. We love to completely. see it, as the kids say. Yeah, we, we do love to see it. Um, but in terms of <laughs> shutting them down, expropriating their wealth um, and assets and redistributing to the state sector, that is probably where the complications are going to come in. And you're going to be drawn up into like legal battles. So part of, I want to say, the European Convention on Human Rights, which is about a person's right to choose education. Some legal experts have been saying they don't think that would be an issue. Others have said, um, in the context of this announcement and previously as well, that it might do. Uh, but the Another big um, legal boundary to that is the right to private property. So I think it's going to be a very difficult legal challenge, potentially, if a Labour government is rocking up to Eton and saying, right, you know, we're shutting you down and we're taking your land and assets. Eton, you know, and any other private school who they say that to are going to go straight to the courts on that one. So it's not going to be a straightforward campaign. But I do agree with you that if you want a very quick say quick like if you want a surefire way to rebalance uh the outcomes of uh young people in terms of like which so social classes and which um, income groups end up in the top jobs there's no better way to do that than abolishing private schools i think as always with these kind of things where symbols of entrenched social privilege kind of seem like an attack on that many people view that to be in a personal attack on themselves and mm. especially i think this especially you see this in the kind of feedback luke about about private schools as we know people who went to private schools are massively overrepresented especially in the media um i don't have the figures on hand but you know we're all familiar with just the way that they uh, kind of dominate our our airwaves and you know full disclosure i went to a private school as well so you know that's something for me to chew on and think well no but i'm not gonna <laughs> hey i'm not gonna start rambling on like i'm some like annoying person yes. on twitter but you know yes. it would be silly for me not to kind of make my uh make my um, no no completely my, my position obvious you know as an as a privately educated oxbridge graduate i am fully aware that like <laughs> um my you know, the fact that I have a podcast is not like the wildest thing that's ever happened and out of character <laughs> for people who come from my social class who um who who are trying to make it in the world. But anyway, um self flagellation notwithstanding. Not that that was self flagellation, but you know, um we can self referral anyway. We can we all we can all self refer a bit on the social media podcast. We all privileged to <laughs> varying extents. No, I think what it will take is just gonna be a completely um for people to evaluate their positions and realize that the abolition of private schools is not a kind of a an attack on you know as everyone who goes to private school loves to say oh my parents worked really hard and put me through or i was a scholarship mm. boy or etc etc instead to just to to kind of truly understand the way in which they perpetuate social inequality in our country which is to be honest blindingly obvious to most of us and mm-hmm. simply continually and stridently make the argument that you know a distribution of their resources and if Eton were sharing everything they offer to their students with the other uh school children in Slough like maybe maybe that would be a better thing for the country and um a better make England and you know Britain a better place to raise children in the first place um mm. I don't know to me that feels like I know it's kind of separate from the whole like the nitty-gritty of like funding the policy and um what you were just talking about but I do think it's worth flagging and drawing attention just to the way that we talk about this as like a kind of monolith of commentators and people in the press or like even more tangentially mm. associated um yeah and as you as you were saying that i actually thought of another slight contradiction you were saying about redistributing um eason's assets to the state schools in slough i don't know how that is going to be done while simultaneously integrating the schools to the state sector. I sound like I'm being very overly critical of the motion. I'm not. I'm beyond. I'm beyond happy that abolishing private school is now 
going to be Labour Party policy. I think that is absolutely the right thing to be doing. And I really hope that it is done within my lifetime and within the next Labour government. But, you know, I just want to make sure it's done right, basically. Because, yeah, I agree with everything you said again. Um, at the end of the day, you shouldn't get to give your child a better education based on how much money you have. You know, education is a right. It's not a service to be bought. Also, at the end of the day, if private schools did not offer a policy of social engineering, people wouldn't pay for them. Everybody knows, every parent knows implicitly or, you know, subconsciously at least, um, that in paying for the child to go to private school, they are also paying for a better education and subsequently paying for a better life than sending them to the state school. Um, and, you know, oh, if we lived in an ideal world, they would just send them to the state school anyway. Yeah, sure. But, like, the very existence of private schools allows that perpetuation to happen because as long as there is a service that you can pay for that says, oh, yeah, we're going to give you a good education, that is going to entice people who can afford that sort of thing. There are a couple of, like, very good books on the subject which I would recommend to people. Um, there's The Class Ceiling by Sam Friedman, which goes into meticulous detail um, it, with the data about uh, just how um, privately educated people do perpetuate all these various industries um, and you know how many times you're more likely uh, to become uh, to get a top paying job like a, become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever if you went to private school um, and the other book which is really worth picking up is Posh Boys uh, by Robert Verkaik I want to say Verkaik I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce his last name. Both really interesting books um, going into the history of private schools and the data. So YouGov did a poll on this. Um, just 22% of Britons back a ban on private schools and 50% oppose. Um, and Labour voters themselves are also split. So 38% are in favour and 35% are against. That's really surprising to me. I thought the figures would be higher because, you know, regardless of where you're sitting in the political spectrum, we are living in a time where, uh, you know, people want to rage against the elite and that kind of thing um and surely private schools should be really emblematic of that and a lot of the criticism of boris johnson has been oh he's another old etonian into office i don't know i don't i'm i'm just a bit stumped on how we can make it appealing to people beyond going on those kind of like populist lines but maybe those populist lines in terms of privilege and the elite aren't working maybe a lot of labor voters do actually send their kids to private school i don't know probably a mixture of the two I just feel like there's got to be a better way. Like there's got there's got to be there's got to be a cut through at some point when you just say we want we want all of our children to have the best opportunities they can possibly have and this is a this is a tangible way of doing that. Even mm. just removing the charitable status and saying don't you think it is crazy that private schools do not pay tax? That that's got to be something which you know even if they don't end up being fully abolished it's least you could say like well, you know what can you really say to that? Like, what's the response there? Like, is there is yeah, there a good there response isn't. to that? Um, I mean, nothing's springing to mind. If one does, uh, please uh, email in and uh, <laughs> we can we can discuss it or write a piece about you know the way in which we uh we kind of contend with these questions because it is quite complicated and there isn't necessarily a, a clear answer at the moment. Yeah, it's 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 like the the tax thing is just an example of like historical privilege, right? Because Oxbridge colleges are the same; they're registered charities that don't have to pay tax. I think all colleges are, at least. Or, um, I'm not entirely sure. I know at least some are. Some, something I did see uh, a journalist was kind of like tweeting something a Labour MP had sent them, and clearly a Labour MP who was on the right of the party, and he was saying how conference was going terribly and the message that Labour was sending out was that they hate success and they care too much about where you come from and that kind of thing, um, which seems to be a reference to the abolished private schools motion. So maybe there's something in that. It's about not making it seem like a Labour government doesn't want you to find success and be an entrepreneur and, and have a good life and that kind of thing. And um, shifting the conversation away to it's about putting power in the hands of you as an individual, um, as a worker, not um, in the hands of kind of like these external dramatic social forces um, such as uh, prejudice and institutional elitism and to not feel that like you can't get where you want in life because of those institutional barriers i've, I've like this is something i i don't think i said this on the podcast so i don't remember but it's like something it's like a kind of like framing in my head which i've had for a while it's like neoliberalism the pitch of neoliberalism and thatcher's electoral pitch was that it was about putting hands back in the power hands back in the power uh <laughs> 
putting power back in the hands of the individual <laughs> and not the state. But neoliberalism doesn't do that because neoliberalism and capitalism, unrestricted capitalism, has uh, strengthened people and companies at the very top. So now we end up with um, monopolies uh, in certain industries. We've talked before on the podcast about Disney's monopoly um, over the entertainment industry. Tech monopolies, Apple and Google. Um, Samsung to a lesser extent as well and of course very individually wealthy people, billionaires, trillionaires Jeff Bezos that has been the real result of uh, capitalism and neoliberalism but in if, if a government were to enact the policies which Labour are proposing so you know democratising uh, workplaces and putting workers on boards of companies um, redistributing wealth then you would have actually a very real chance I think of people being able to rise up on their own terms and having that power, economic power, but also democratic power with more devolution to local councils, etc., etc. Um, you know, it, it's it's about democracy and having having that um, individual uh, power and individual determination to succeed. And at the moment, it's very hard for a lot of people to succeed. And to me, abolishing private schools isn't about making success and making parents who want to who want the best for their children look bad it's just about saying in 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 doing what you think is best for your child what you're actually doing is um putting society society as a whole at a disadvantage um and making it so that um the best and brightest can't actually go on and proceed to the job the jobs which they deserve in short basically private schools are very bad and we agree that they should be abolished <laughs> and it's good that labor have made that policy is the TLDR of that entire segment. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Joe here, sneaking onto the podcast at the last moment. Eugenie is right. I've just started my master's, so I couldn't make the two recording sessions this week. But I did want to have a quick word on how um, enthusiastic I feel following many of the policy announcements this week. Um, There are lots of aspects of conference that demonstrated many of the internal problems that Labour still faces and Miriam, Tess, William and Eugenie covered those really well in the main part of the podcast. I think they're the great motions put forward by um, the grassroots campaigns, so um, Labour for a Green New Deal, uh, Labour for Freedom of Movement and um, Labour Against Private Schools were a huge source of optimism and I hope they'll now find... um, backing from the party as a whole and will find their way into the manifesto um i was absolutely obsessed with mcdonald's speech this week where he made a commitment to a 32-hour week within a decade um amongst other commitments to strengthen collective bargaining and end the rollout of universal credit lots of these things are things that we've written about a lot on the site over the past year and it did really please me to sort of see that kind of um, alternative world that we are fighting for and being sketched out properly at this conference. Friend of the site and former podcast guest, uh, Callum O'Dwyer, messaged me during that speech to say how social reviewy it all was. So that was obviously pleasing. Since then, though, we've had Boris Johnson's shameful comments in the Commons. Um, His sort of rhetoric is putting people in danger and he must be um, beaten, I think, um, some of the things that he said uh, yesterday were so beyond the pale and it really did demonstrate to me how sort of disgusting and disgraceful it is that he is our Prime Minister. So yeah, I want to extend my solidarity to everybody working to remove him and this Conservative Party from power. I think while we must always confront the sort of lax attitude to democratic norms and generally disgusting behaviour exhibited by Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings and others is important that a positive alternative for the future is presented to people. And I think we really need to make sure that this current mess is the sort of final tantrum of yesterday's um, men and not the start of sort of a further intensification of the nationalist populist right. I think Labour now, you can see in sort of the policy developments over the last week are beginning to piece together a sort of sketching out of what that alternative vision looks like. And so I think there are lots of reasons for optimism. Obviously, there's the caveats 
that were presented in the main part of the podcast and that I've presented too. And I think you must be aware of all the sort of dangers there. But I mean, there are reasons for optimism. I think on a, a sort of separate note, it was really nice to meet lots of um, fans of the website and fans of the podcast at Labour Conference this week. Thank you to everybody who said hello. And thank you to everybody who were pitching me pieces by Brian Beach. That was good. And please do get in contact. Hopefully I'll be back on the podcast properly next week. Um, have a good one. Mm-hmm.